folks, this is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Instagram and Facebook if you use those social media platforms. Today, we're talking with Dr. Robert Warren of the Warren Lab at Buffalo State College. The Warren Lab focuses on the impacts of climate change on ecological systems, specifically species invasion, land fragmentation, and overall climate. In this conversation, we talk a bit about climate change, adaptation, ants, and honey locusts. And you guys know how much I love honey locusts, so we have a really great conversation on the subject. So take a listen and let us know what you think. Hi, Robert. Thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure, sure. So I am um, an associate professor at Buffalo State in Buffalo. Um, My area of research really falls under the heading of, of global change ecology. I'm very interested in habitat fragmentation, climate change, and species invasion, and how those three things interact. Oftentimes, that work involves plants and ants. And mostly, and it's not necessarily that I have an affinity for those, but they are very useful for testing hypotheses and you usually don't need permits for either one. So um, <laughs> I do a lot with those. Interesting. The plants I thought was pretty obvious, at least to me, but the ants is kind of interesting. Can you, can you explain a little bit deeper about that? Sure. So for my um, dissertation work, I was trying to explain the distribution of these two plants using just tons of data. We had 10,000 plants. We had all the environmental data. And I still couldn't explain why one was doing better than the other. And um, one day I was loading some equipment into my truck and they're both ant dispersed. But I thought, what if it's the ants? And along in the short, they drop seed at different times, and they are um, south of the main ant disperser, so probably post um, glacial maximum. As things warmed, the ants made it north faster than this these plants, these very early seed dropping plants. And really, at that point, you could explain their disappearance from the south better by the fact that these ants had left than by their abiotic requirements. And I just was hooked. Ants, oh geez, they, you know, in terms of looking at, they're impacted by habitat fragmentation, they're ubiquitous, they're everywhere, they're ecosystem engineers, Um, their thermal tolerance is not hard to measure, Uh, They're invasive. You know, I mean, they just are like my favorite guinea pigs ever. And now you're the ant guy. Yeah, yeah. You end up that's what people start calling you is the ant guy because. So, yeah, so they, you know, I guess we all end up finding our favorite guinea pig and for the ants, (laughs) they're mine. So I guess we'll start with the ant. You know, I I was skimming through some of your papers. I had actually found you and we talked a little bit about it earlier that you had written or done some research on honey locusts and the indigenous peoples of North America and how they had played into that dispersal of the seeds, which I'm assuming means ants didn't have much to do with those seeds. <laughs> no, yeah. I guess uh, with all the work you've been doing with ants, uh, what are some of the major findings you've been fi- uh, in your research? 
Yeah, um, I think what, what I find really fascinating is, so I typically my research almost 99% would be on seed dispersing ants. And so these are ants that have co-evolved or probably the plants have co-evolved more than them. Um, to, they trick or induce the ant to disperse their seeds. And this was discovered in 1906 in Germany. So it's a very old or well-known mutualism and I think sometimes when that happens, we forget to keep looking for new things. And so, um, you know, two things I've been very interested in. And one, I don't think the ants need the plants. So to call it a mutualism is a misnomer. I think the ants are being tricked by the plants. And, you know, not to, to try and not go on to too many tangents, but, you know, eusociality is so successful or this... Um, this adaptation by certain insects to have roles and to work together is so incredibly successful. I think it's easy for them to be exploited because they have so much extra energy. Um, you know, not that different than, than humans. It's, people don't realize the only reason that we have skyscrapers and can conduct war is because we have so much excess energy because we work together so well even as much shit heels as we can be, we still are, you know, we work together and the same with ants, they can be exploited and it, it just doesn't cost them that much. The second thing is they don't move the seeds very far. So I've always been intrigued what might be the stronger benefit. And I've more and more come to the conclusion it's fungal or pathogen protection. Ants living in the ground, living in moist conditions, they're very susceptible to pathogenic fungi. And so they can constantly exude antimicrobial compounds. And it seems that a byproduct of that is that they accidentally protect the seeds from fungal pathogens. And so we're, I have two students finishing up projects on this right now, and they both support this idea that these microbial soil effects are potentially huge. And so, um, you know, this is far afield from where I started with ants, but it is, is it tends to work in science as you peel that onion, uh, you just keep getting more. And I'll, I'll finish with, as part of all of that, I've fallen into a discovery that there are um, actually quite a few we're finding um, oak gall species that have co or convergently evolved, sorry, uh, uh, I don't know if that can be used as a verb, so let me back up. There's a convergent evolution, whereas um, galls, which are a, um, a growth induced by insects on plants to protect their eggs and oftentimes feed their larvae, um, these wasps induce oaks to produce galls that drop from the tree with a second organ on that gall to attract ants to retrieve them back to the nest exactly like seeds. So this appears to be a much wider phenomenon than we've ever known. And that's actually a very new discovery. That paper is in review right now. But it's, it just speaks to this, um, to this magic of ecology, this complexity, and, and the fact that we can still find new stuff. It just, yeah, that's why I get up in the morning. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, it's great. That's like, 
uh, like you just said, there's so much that can still be found. And I feel like ecology somehow, despite it being like our most natural thing that we could have researched for the longest amount of time, also seems to be the one that there's the most opportunity for research. And in some cases, you don't even necessarily need to be an expert to um, dig into that kind of stuff. You know, I, like I said, before we were recording, I have sheep. And one of the things I do is I, I do a lot of tree hay. And that's kind of a lost art of um, harvesting branches and all of that that goes into making it palatable for the sheep throughout the year. So much of that information about what's edible and what isn't is lost. And so much of the things about like acorns and all these other nuts and what we can utilize them for has been largely lost because of probably and it's probably just been like the last hundred years or so uh, as you know, industrial agriculture has kind of taken off. And everyone was told, scale up or don't farm anymore. And uh, within just a couple of generations, so much has been lost. Yeah, it's a great. Well, and of course, they package it and deliver it in barrels, you know, whatever energy you need versus what you can forage right around your farm. Yeah. I mean, well, and, and just, you know, on that point, what's fast, I found a reference early 1900s that apparently folks used to gather these um, galls these um, oat galls, and they were so nutritious, they would get a bucket full and feed it to livestock. Huh. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. I mean, there's so much nutrient in the oak, the uh, acorn rather. All you're doing is essentially the, the equivalent of like, almost like a black soldier fly bucket, if you're familiar with those. What, with with what? The black soldier fly buckets, where they essentially like feed black soldier flies and the larvae fall out the bottom and then the chickens can eat them. It's like the oh, same concept, no. pretty much, except with acorns. That's actually, that is cool. Yeah, insects are so incredibly abundant and so full of nutrition that you know. Personally, I've eaten some insects. It was fine. I don't, you know, I can't see ever changing my diet too much. Maybe I'm too old, but um, you know, there's a lot of of potential energy in insects. Um, and if we can use that or utilize it in a way to feed livestock, if we don't want to eat it. Uh, that's equally as good. But to to get back to this idea of the seed dispersal, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the research that you did with um, the honey locusts because they're one of my favorite trees. And um, I I could talk about them all day because I think there's there they <laughs> are the untapped potential tree, in my opinion, honey locusts and black locusts uh, for different reasons that I think uh, there's a reason why your research pointed to what you found. And I definitely want to talk about it more. So could you uh, tell us a little bit about that paper you did on the uh, indigenous people of North America and the honey locusts? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this one came about, and again, I think, you know, natural history has has been kind of stripped from ecology. And I I would argue we need to bring it back. Um, You know, maybe we're not going to publish papers on descriptions, but I think that field observation is crucial to being a good ecologist. And so, you know, I'm a nerd and I'm always watching if I'm out in a wild area, you know, you know, I'm always watching. And so growing up in Midwest, um, mainly Indiana, yeah, I was trying to think about this today. When did honey locusts hit my radar? And I really couldn't tell. I can remember being a kid and breaking off the thorny bunches and chasing my buddies around and then chasing my sister around and having to sit at the bad boy picnic table, you know, <laughs> things like this, you know, cause it, 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 when you're a young boy, what could be more fascinating than those gnarly bunches of 
super sharp thorns. Yeah. I'm always amazed. Um, and then at some point, you know, becoming aware of the fact that those trees are, were probably adapted to uh, megafauna, Great Plains kind of thing, something that would, would um, you know, bark scrapers, like maybe some sort of rhinoceros. And then those pods clearly are, are, are um, geared towards some large megafauna that would swallow them whole. And so, you know, honey locust was on my radar, kind of like you, a favorite tree. I would notice them. And there was one day, a lot of my research was in the Southern Appalachian Mountains, mostly North Carolina. And one day it just hit me that every, you know, they're not a common tree in the mountains. They're a plains tree. And one day it hit me that every time I saw a honey locust, I could throw a rock and hit an archaeological site. And I thought, is there a connection between Cherokee and honey locust? And I actually went and talked to somebody at Western Carolina University that knows a little bit more. And they were like, Oh, absolutely. They use the pods for sugar. And so I started to do some research and, and sure enough, um, you know, it's pretty well documented that, um, you know, the, the pods were boiled, that sugary uh, substance between the, the outside and the actual seeds embedded within, which is sticky. I mean, just get on your hands is sticky. That was, um, that was sugar. And, you know, I think, for us modern um, uh, folks, we, it's, we don't remember the fact that uh, honeybees are a non-native invasive species. And so they, they would not have been available for honey back pre-contact. So, you know, honey locusts would have been a major source. And so at that point, I became very fascinated with the idea that these trees could be a legacy of the Cherokee that this could be, you know, and, and, you know, there's always also so many little tangents you could go on, but I think um, as, as North Americans, we forget, or we think of in terms of archeology span that we're gonna see a stone pyramid. And if you don't see a stone pyramid, then nobody was really here. But of course, the indigenous people of North America used a lot of wood that doesn't last and of course, a lot of things that might persist, such as roads, we've paved over. So, you know, we just sort of glommed onto what was here. So the fact that this was this legacy that I might be able to, to decipher the pattern of hooked me like a fish. I was like, yeah, this is a this this is worth investigating. And um, and so yeah, that's a long answer, but that's what got me into it. <laughs> So what what exactly did you find? I know you were talking a little bit earlier before we recorded about um, the process of trying to prove and disprove some of the stuff that people had assumed about how the honey locusts had traveled and what your research found. Yeah, okay, certainly. Um, well, you know, the one was how do you link? How do you link these two? And that was a little bit difficult because archaeology, archaeological sites are secret. Uh, for good reason, because of, of uh, people stealing things. And so it wasn't, I couldn't just get a map of where the Cherokee were. So I, but I also didn't want to know too much before I surveyed the honey locusts, because I didn't want to be biased towards finding them where the Native Americans were. So um, it, it kind of went 
an, an iterative process. But the long and the short of it is, honey locusts only occur where there were Native Americans. Um, and of course, Native Americans, just like modern, were um, uh, 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 clustered around water and flat places. Again, we tend to think, or at least a lot of folks tend to think of Native Americans as being these lone hunters in the woods, these nomadic, and, and that's just not the case. They were farming, they were settled, and um, honey locusts were a crop. And there, there were three major honey locust orchards that were known, one in what's now Franklin, North Carolina, one in South Carolina, and one in Georgia. And um, the one in Franklin was right where the, the Little Tennessee and the Colasagia River came together. There was sort of an island created by the two rivers. And Colasagia is actually the Cherokee word for honey locust. Interestingly enough, the colonists thought it meant sugar or sweet. So a lot of places where there were honey locusts are now called Sugar Cove, Sugar Lane, and things like that, which is, a, again, another legacy of the planting of these honey locust trees. So, I mean, it's the pattern is just strikingly clear. And what I did as sort of a control is I also looked at honey locust association with post-Cherokee settlements um, colonial settlements, which tend to be further from water because then you have piping and things like that, and um, still flat or relatively flat in the mountains, and there's just no association whatsoever. Um, these were clearly linked to Cherokee and Cherokee planting. Yeah, and from my own research, one of the things I've found on this subject is that there seems to be a lot of evidence that the honey locusts that were planted around Cherokee sites also were generally um, had higher sugar production. I'm not sure if you're familiar with J. Russell Smith and John Hershey. Um, John Hershey in Pennsylvania had done uh, these big, um, essentially, campaigns to try to get the honey locust with the highest sugar content, persimmons, and so on. A lot of these American indigenous trees. And uh, all the ones that came with the highest sugar content were, from what I had read, near Native American sites. So like with the big fatty sugar uh, honey locust, which I think has about 37, 38% sugar in the pods was directly from a Cherokee site, which I thought was really interesting that they were not only taking them, but also selectively breeding them. Not surprising. They weren't dumb. No. Yeah. And they probably got that. I mean, so I, I always want to be careful. The science suggests that the Cherokee came from, um, maybe Delaware area. So they were in Iroquois and you could see that a lot in the language and in the, uh, like the, the way they built palisades for the, for the towns. The Cherokee themselves believe they rose in place. And so I don't want to question their religion, but generally I go with the science, whatever the culture is. So, you know, and so this pattern should hold true in the Northeast as well. And that hasn't been investigated. Um, but it does look like the technology of using honey locusts for sugar was an Iroquois invention, which is really fascinating, too. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed is um, I, I've tried looking online for some academic 
uh, evidence of how it was utilized, like how they harvested the sugar. If, I know that in a lot of cases they just scooped it out, but I'm assuming that there was some kind of processing method in order to store it. Mm. But I've never been able to find any research or academic anything on it. So I wasn't sure if maybe you've heard or read anything about it. Was it, it was either Lawson or um, hmm. I think they may have boiled it. If I remember correctly, they boiled it, the sugar, which would have con- you know made it into a liquid. But how they stored it, that's a great question. And, you know, the, the, the honey locust had a lot of. Um, so the names escape me. He actually wrote a ton on Native Americans in the Southern Appalachians. Um, for the government. He's, there's some great publications. And so, but, you know, things such as um, if lightning ever struck a honey locust, that was super important. And so all of the fragments of the tree would be planted with crops because it was believed that would help your crops. Um, there's also a story of a chief who wanted to test the character of someone who was visiting. So he put honey locust under the seat. And if you were not poked by the honey locust, you were of good character. <laughs> so it had uh, some mystical properties as well. Um, and it was apparently important because there's another case of a chief whose sons had gotten into a wrestling match and, and he was letting it go because he wanted to sort of, I guess, assess which of his sons was stronger, but in the course of their wrestling match, they they bumped into his honey locust and he ended it right there because damaging the honey locust was not allowed. So they were an important tree. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of those trees, you, know, you think about it from all the different perspectives. You have leaves or a leaf that is, you know, 20% protein, um, which is pretty rare. It's fast growing, dense wood which is pretty rare. Um, you've got the sugar pods, which it's one of the only perennials that I know of that can provide sugar. And lots of it. It sends up suckers. So if you need to chop it down because you're getting firewood, it'll come right back up from the same roots. It fixes nitrogen into the soil. Even though I know it's not a part of the locust acacia family, I know there's been some research. It's a different relationship that it has with the bacteria or fungi in the soil, but I believe as of the, the most recent thing I've read that it's still there. They assume that it does fix nitrogen into the soil. I mean, it's, it's hard to beat a tree that can do all those things. It's a great tree. I know it's, you know, and it's, it's always sad to me. It, well, it's fascinating. So if you think about the fact that it was co-evolved and, um, you know, interacted with megafauna that are now extinct, was sort of, you know, so essentially that baton was dropped, was picked up by indigenous people who again dispersed it everywhere. Clearly that, you know, it came to the mountains of North Carolina through folk people, not megafauna. And then now, you know, the variety without thorns is one of the most common street trees. It's everywhere. I'm always a little sad. I would rather have the thorns. It, it seems a little emasculated without them but yeah it's still a great tree yeah yeah it is i mean the thorns and that's the other thing you can use them for hedgerows if you're trying to keep animals in with the thorn they are i remember so i um when i was working on this project i also worked with the cherokee nation to get permission to get on certain properties and um they thought it was funny that i wanted to study the tree because um 
they just see it as a nuisance because the 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 thorns can actually go through a tractor tire. Uh, but they also knew that it was sweet, and it was the only folks, other than maybe yourself and a couple others, that I've ever met that were aware of that property, which to me shows still some sort of legacy of connection with the land or the plants. It, it, like I said, it's one of those trees that. It like you had also said actually about the fact that they come from a different era. It's like you know we get these glimpses like the Osage orange, the locusts. Uh, there's this handful of trees that somehow for whatever reason just refuse to go extinct, and it seems like they're kind <laughs> of on their last you know last breath at this point. But they shouldn't be because they have so much utilization, and uh, we just have to rethink about how we can utilize them. That so yesterday, no, day before yesterday, I was hiking in the Niagara Gorge, which for those that aren't familiar would be the Niagara River just below Niagara Falls. And it gets very narrow and fast, and it's a really neat little area. And at the end of the trail, right before there's a dam, there's this huge Osage Orange, gorgeous Osage Orange. And I'm like, how the hell did it get here? <laughs> This is not where I would have ever expected an Osage Orange. But again, you know, um, indigenous folks moved it around because, it, you know, the wood is so good for bows. I mean, it's is there better wood for bows? I've never heard of it. And of course, then the colonists liked it for hedgerows because the livestock would eat those big fruit. And so, you know, again, it's fascinating that we've sort of picked up the baton after the extinction of their dispersers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, there's just something to be said about it. A tree that has lived for that many millions of years and to be like, we're not going <laughs> to, we're just going to let it go extinct on its own. We're not going to do anything about it. it. Just seems, seems unethical. I agree. I agree. I, I, I'm fascinated with all of those megafaunal, you know, that are still putting out fruit for, for animals that are extinct. I mean, I guess maybe they, they're more optimistic than we are. Right? <laughs> we'll keep putting it out. You're coming back, yeah, right? One of these days. It's like waiting for Godot. <laughs> so, I, you know, one of the, to kind of circle this back, one of the really interesting things about the Osage Orange and the Honey Locust, uh, and even the Black Locust, is that despite the fact that they're primarily, you could call them Southern trees, um, southern central trees, whatever, their hardiness range is very extreme. I think all of them can make it to about zone five, four, somewhere mm -hmm. around there, which seems way out of place, especially based on what we were just talking about. That they, you know, that that natural range, even with indigenous people, their range wasn't very far, and that probably speaks to the fact that these species survived the ice age and you know you think about where uh, glaciation went down they were right on the edge they were you know if they could travel quickly they'd probably be sharing the forest with like the alpine forests just because that that's the climate they had originally evolved from mm -hmm. so as we think about climate change and i know you've done a lot of research and on this subject area is there anything we can learn from or any way we can utilize or think about these species as ways to move forward and deal with the ec ecological damages that are coming from climate change in terms of like how we can adapt species for the or ecologies for that future? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's so, you know, another thing that I'm very fascinated with that you've, you've touched upon is, you know, you, 
maybe when you're a young oncologist or naturalist, you tend to think of things as right now. And I think even if you look at the history of ecology or plant biology, you know, the original theories, things like climax, forest, and succession were, were really based on a single point in time, a very short time span, like that space mattered more than time. And I think with rapid climate change, we've all become aware that this is just a moment. And that really to say that there's a, a, a fixed plant community is, is pretty much folly. And I actually didn't get hired for a job because I said that in the job interview that I think that all plant communities are transient in, in long time and they didn't care for that. They wanted a traditional, but anyway, <laughs> so those things had to have moved south during the glacial maximum and then have to get back, right? And I think that that's where things got very interesting. And when you look at something like the Terea pine, or Franklinia, these things that are disappearing in Florida or, uh, or disappeared from Alabama completely, um, you know, I think they lost their disperser and they couldn't get back. And, you know, you take Franklinia, which Bartram found in the 1700s in, a, you know, a, um, an Alpine, um, I'm sorry, in Alabama River Valley, it can survive negative 60. Yeah, what's it doing there? <laughs> what are you doing in Alabama? Um, and so, you know, that was a northern species that for whatever reason couldn't make it back. Um, Terea clearly is, you know, probably lost a, 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 um, a large tortoise as a disperser. So, you know, with all of our forest fragmentation and highways and urbanization, it's just that much harder to adjust to climate shifts. And so, you know, I, I always tell my students, this is like a boxing match and maybe you shouldn't use that these days, I don't know. But, you know, you have forest fragmentation is like, you know, um, a hit to one side of your gut and then non-native species, a hit to the other side of your gut and you drop your arms and climate change is the uppercut to the jaw that knocks you out. You know, I think that our systems could handle one of these, maybe two, but all three together. It's tough to see if we don't do, you know, uh, these are human made problems. And I just don't buy that we, that we can get through them without human made solutions that we can just, you know, I, people say this to me all the time, you know, leave the non-natives alone. God put them here. They have a purpose. And it was like, well, yeah, but if we just walk away and say, we created this mess, but we're going to let nature clean it up, it ain't going to get cleaned up. Yeah. And I think that points to the general understand or thought process that we don't exist as a part of nature. And right. I, I, that is equally as damaging as the people that only want to go back to pure native species. And then, you know, the question is, okay, when? And, you know, exactly. you know, if you on a long enough timeline, you know, this was all ice. So do we go, you know, should this be alpine forest? Is it when white people showed up? You know, wh when do you want to draw that line? And how does that <laughs> how is that really sustainable in climate change? 
That's why I, I personally, like I said, I was talking about the honey locusts. I have those on my property. Um, I have Osage oranges on my property because they'll, they'll thrive in this climate. And in reality, if those seed dispersals were around, uh, dispersers were around, they probably would be considered native here, but that, you know, Absolutely. those, um, megafauna are gone. So now they're not traveling. So the, best we or at least my personal opinion is the best we can do is utilize our knowledge and try to uh, acclimate species as quickly as possible to create diverse communities that can sustain climate change absolutely and you know for me the criteria always is not necessarily what's your origin but what's what's your place so you know if you're familiar with i you know i think doug talamy did just this fantastic paper where he showed that when you look at native versus non-native trees, you get, you know, 900 species of lepidopterans or, you know, caterpillars on oak trees and, you know, 700 on cherry. And then you look at the non-natives and you get maybe one, maybe two, right? Um, we just published a paper that showed the same thing for galls. On, on oak trees, you get like 900 species of galls. On the non-natives, you get one, two, zero. And so, you know, but then you get things like crab apples that pretty much hold their own. You know, a lot of native things use crab apples and they're, you know, a lot of those are not, they're not native. So to me, it's, it's much more, you know, if you fragment the landscape, so you lose, let's say you've lost 30 to 60% of the habitat. And so in that remaining 40%, let's say 20% of that is non-native plants then you're only 20% left because, you know, a buckthorn, not weed dominated landscape supports almost nothing. Right. And so, you know, whereas crab apple would do pretty well, support a lot of stuff, but you see what I mean? Yeah. It, it's that combination that's the disaster. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Have you, um, you brought up the oaks. Have you been doing any further research on oaks there? Um, I have a little pet project with some burr oaks, if you're familiar with them. They're mm -hmm. low, almost no tannin oaks. They're like these giant, like three inch oaks, uh, acorns rather. So I, I've been trying to grow some out because that's, I, I think they were probably something that indigenous people were selectively breeding and before they'd ever really got it to full fruition of like, here's something that's taking over the landscape the way chestnuts had that, you know, now I, I feel like something that I can, you know, I, I might never see it grow to have more than a, a handful of them, but I, I want to make my mark with them. So have have you uh, <laughs> done any more research on oaks or are you planning to? Well, yeah, I mean, so apparently Doug Talmadge just put out a book on oaks and that's going to be more about the natural, you know, the, the interaction with native things. But um, in, in, in looking at the honey locust kind of things, there are several papers that definitely show um, a, a bias of of oak groves near Native American um, sites as well. So, and, you know, from what I've read, a lot of the fall fires were set to actually clear leaves off so they could find acorns. Yeah, and I've heard that also wiped out a lot of the, um, the what's it called, the, the boars, the, um, of course, I can't think of the, the name right now, the little worms. Oh, the weevils? Weevils, there we go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they set a lot of fires, but apparently a lot of that, or a good amount of that, was for acorns, which is, um, 
you know, like, yeah, you know, oaks are, you, you just can't beat oaks in terms of supporting people and, and Lepidoptera and galls and every other thing. I mean, they've been around for an incredibly long time. So everything's had time to evolve with and to them, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There and you know it's it's so unfortunate that we never got to see at least in the modern era that the oak uh, hickory or uh, oak chestnut forests that had littered the entire landscape to really understand kind of what kind of capacity the ecology could provide in terms of uh, local food from perennial crops. Absolutely, and you know it, it, it's it's funny you say that because as an ecologist, I always take it for granted, but you know really that's what's about. You know, you could hold your breath all you want. You can't photosynthesize. You cannot generate your own energy. It just isn't going to happen. And when you talk about a system, you know, how much solar energy a patch can convert to carbon is everything. And so, again, when you put non-native things that nothing can eat in there, well, yeah, they're converting it to energy, but it's energy that nobody can use, you know, the local critters. But you get things like oaks and chestnuts and hickories in there, and you're really maximizing your punch of, you know, for that patch, they are taking a lot of solar energy and making it available to the next level. And, you know, I think a lot of folks miss that part, that their lawn just ain't cutting it. <laughs> You know, if you want to bring back some megafaunal grazers, maybe, and, you know, let your lawn grow, it might be useful, but otherwise, right, we're just not, you know, I say this before, but it's funny because you look at Florida after a hurricane comes and, or Katrina, and you see these devastated neighborhoods and nobody ever asks, why aren't there people living there? What happened? You know, this is a mystery. And then you look at a suburb and people are asking, why do we have 9 billion less birds? Why do we have an insect apocalypse? Huh? <laughs> yeah, well, start someplace. Yeah, it's not rocket science. There's nothing for them to eat. Yeah, I was just thinking about that this year. Around here, at least, uh, mosquitoes did not show up until probably like three weeks ago. I hadn't had like a, a single mosquito bite and I was starting to freak out a little bit. And um, <laughs> fortunately, it seems like they finally came around. But, you know, even just basic things like traveling, you don't see bugs on your, you know, on your front glass or lights or anything. anymore. And uh, it, it's frightening when you start to think about it. Yeah, I remember. I mean, you know, as, as much of a nuisance as they are, we need them for the system. Certainly, you know, you know, you know and it goes back to pollinator gardens. It, I'm, it never ceases to amaze me that folks want, now they, some folks even want bees, which is great. And I, I mean, all bees, not just honeybees. And certainly they want butterflies, but then they spray pesticides when the babies eat the leaves. Like you, you can't have the butterfly without the caterpillar. Yeah. You're not really supporting pollinators if you're killing the babies. Yeah. Right. It's uh, it's wild. But I guess to get back to the the main subject, uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit, but it it all ties together because like all of this is tied to climate change and how things fall are falling apart. So I guess my my last question for you really is: Is there anything people individuals can do that aren't researchers that are just concerned about making sure species can 
survive climate change and ecologies can survive. Is there anything that we can do? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I, I, I hate to just beat a dead horse, but plant native things. And I think it's cool, you know, we're, we're doing some stuff at Buff State. I know Syracuse did, is we're going to plant um, genetic stock from the north and south, you know, in, in a sense, build resilience gardens, right? Because, um, you know, I think it'd be really, in, in like your burr oaks, it'd be fascinating if you could get some, you know, southern stock in there too, because it might be for the next 10, 20 years, your northern stock does well, but then it shifts, right? Yeah. As those as those others, and the and the bottom line is those native plants are what supports the native insects, which support the native animals, and so forth. And you know, any loss of that, um, you know, the life raft is gone. Yeah. And so I think that's, you know, I'm not a purist that says you you know you have to plant all native stuff. But certainly, I think 75% of whatever you have on your property should be native so that you're sharing the space with, you know, and for a nerd like me, the more I put out native stuff, I'm just gobsmacked by the cool bugs and, and birds that show up. And I live in a village. I don't live in the wilderness. Yeah. And I'm endlessly fascinated and so, you know, I think it can be a lot of fun. You just don't spray them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we had... <laughs> Uh, we've been on this property for three years and we, you know, we don't rake leaves or anything. And this is the first year that we've had fireflies. And I was like, well, it takes them a few years of that, you know, larval stage and all of that to get to a point where you'll actually start seeing them. And this year we're finally seeing them despite not having a lot of mosquitoes at all. We do have those fireflies, which is cool. What a great reward. Right? So for folks that are interested in this kind of stuff, or your, you in particular, is there anywhere you would recommend sending them to go check out more of either your work or something you think is really meaningful? Yeah, um, if they put in Robert Warren, Buffalo State, I have a website if they want to read, you know, my papers. For non-scientists, they're probably mostly boring. Um, you know, I think Doug Talamy's done a really nice job in, in communicating a lot of these things better for the general public. And, um I know he's he's like a super rock star now in the conservation areas, but I think the book's called Bringing Nature Home. Um, and then he has a, apparently a new one on Oaks. I have to say I haven't read it yet, but I think he 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 does a really nice job of um, you know communicating the science in in a more palatable way and a more here's something you can do, um, and then. Yeah, I think those are good. Awesome. Well, Robert, I appreciate your time. This was really interesting. Well, interesting talking with you. I always love uh, when I'm, I'm supposedly being interviewed, but I'm actually learning stuff. That's always great. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on iTunes, which helps us continue to grow and get more exciting guests. As always, this is Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac.